0: Back in my football playing days, we had a strength and conditioning coach, his name was Mike Grant, and he loved putting us through an obstacle course that he created called The Gauntlet. Doesn't that sound precious and fun? The Gauntlet, it was, it was fashioned after, apparently it was fashioned after training that was done for the Navy SEALs. Now you can just tell by looking at me that I was amazing at it, right? Why are you all laughing? Uh, Here's the thing about the gauntlet. It didn't look that hard. From the outside looking in, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it it only took two minutes to get through it. But it was specifically designed to expose your weaknesses. So that at about the halfway point, your entire body began to shut down. You just felt like jello. So very quickly, my goal shifted away from winning the gauntlet to just finishing. That became my, my goal. If I can just find a way to make it through to the end. Now, thankfully, we didn't run the gauntlet every single day. That really would have been self-defeating. Because the point of that obstacle course was not really exercise. It was a test. It was a test. It was a physical test and a mental test. How would we respond when we were really pushed? How would we react when our weaknesses were exposed? That was the question. That's what with the gauntlet was meant to address. But y'all, those, those questions right there, th- those are questions for life. That has nothing to do with football. This is life. We're always, you and me, we're always encountering struggles and trials and difficulties, both external and internal. And so much of life is decided by how we respond, how we endure, how we navigate through those things. But y'all, th- this is one of the areas where, where being a Christian provides us with something truly unique in all the world. Um, Everyone struggles and suffers. It's universal. No one is exempt. But our faith in Jesus gives us a new paradigm, an entirely different paradigm for it. And this is one of the clearest examples here in the Bible. It comes from James chapter 1. Well, what I just read aloud for us, what we're going to look at today, James chapter 1. Now, as we begin our study in James, because we're starting it today, we've got to give some proper context. So we're going to get to the issue at hand, to trials here in a moment. But we have to address the question that I think is obvious Anytime we open up a new book in the Bible. Who is James? Who is this guy who wrote this letter? Well, James, there are a couple of different Jameses in the New Testament, but this James, the consensus is, this is the brother of Jesus. Or we might say the half-brother of Jesus, Jesus, of course, was born supernaturally of a virgin, but he had brothers and sisters who came after him. James was one of the natural-born children of Mary and Joseph. Now, that's no small association, right, being the brother of Jesus. A lot to live up to, I'm sure, for James. But here's the interesting thing. James did not actually believe in Jesus for a long time. We we read about it in John chapter 7. None of Jesus' brothers believed in him during his earthly ministry. That may seem strange to us, but that's what the scripture says. In fact, at different times, we're told that they thought Jesus was crazy. They thought he'd gone mad. They were not his followers. They were not his disciples. He was, in some sense, like a black sheep of the family at at one point. But at some time, James did come to faith. Uh, not faith in his half-brother, but faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. All-encompassing, life-changing faith. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus rose from the grave, and one of the first things he did after his resurrection, he made a special appearance to James. And uh, if you look into the book of Acts, Acts, which tells the story of the the rise of the early church, James is prominent in Acts. He became one of the leaders of the church. He oversaw the council in Jerusalem. James was a big deal. Brother of Jesus, leader of the early church. He's an important person. But you notice how he starts this letter. Look look back with me again at verse 1. He introduces himself, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James does not begin by holding up his credentials here or by reciting his association with Jesus, his familial relationship to Jesus, in order to earn points with us, his readers. No, James simply says, I am a bond servant, a chosen slave and servant of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Not my brother, but my Lord. Therefore, I write to you as one who lives under the sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I give my entire life to him. I submit everything to him to serve him. Now this is an incredible thing. We see this in the scripture. John, the apostle who was very close to Jesus, we see in Revelation when he sees the glorified Jesus in heaven, he does not give him a hug. He falls down as if dead. There is a way about the the disciples, the apostles, that they don't hold up their credentials. Look how close I am to Jesus. They call themselves bondservants. They just love and serve him with their whole life. It's an amazing thing. So this is James. James. And James is writing, you see this in verse 1, he's writing to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. Greetings. Um, He's writing specifically to Jewish Christians who made up the early church uh, probably before the, the incoming of the Gentiles, which we read about beginning mainly in Acts chapter 10. James probably wrote this letter about 15 years after Jesus rose from the grave. This was an early letter, maybe the earliest letter of the New Testament. And it's, it's pretty clear, I think, up front that James is writing to these churches, not one church, but scattered churches. And they're scattered, more than likely, because they're being persecuted. They're being persecuted for their faith. And if that is the case, if that's really true, then it makes sense that James would write the way he does. Because he foregoes pleasantries. He says greetings, and then he jumps right into the issue at hand. The issue of trials. Look at verse 2. He says to them, right off the bat, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is a a wonderfully backward scripture. And maybe if you've been a Christian a long time, if you looked at the scripture before, you may be used to it, accustomed to it. But think about it with fresh eyes here. This is backward. This is counterintuitive. This is contradictory to our nature to rejoice in hardship. It makes no sense. But it's consistent with how God works in the Bible. Uh, Jesus told us how God works, and it's always backward from our expectation and our intuition that uh, Jesus said things like this. Greatness, if you want to be great, you have to become servant of all. You have to be a servant. Uh, If you want to be strong, you have to first become weak. The Apostle Paul learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, Abundance comes through sacrifice, comes through losing yourself. True life comes through denial of self. All of those ideas are backward. They're very difficult for us to stomach. But this one might take the cake. What James says here in in, in verse 2, Count it all joy when you suffer. This one might be the hardest of all to stomach, right? And so let, let's, let's start briefly by clearing the air and talking about what James is not saying. James is not saying that somehow all the bad things in life are really good things, and you should be happy about them. Okay? That's called, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the word for that is, that's, that's, that's just ignorance. To pretend that somehow bad things are really good, because... God is good, and therefore we shouldn't feel bad about them. We should always be happy. That's not what he's saying. The Bible is very clear that bad things are bad, that suffering is bad and painful, period. James is also not saying that Christians are supposed to feel some transcendent joy all the time, never any pain, never any sadness, never any grief, that we're supposed to just smile our way through life because we're supposed to have joy, And what we end up doing, of course, is we end up faking our way through life in that case. We don't deal with the the full realm of human emotion, and we fall apart, okay? We're not supposed to be detached from reality. So what is James saying? Well, when he says, consider it all joy, that literally means to make a mental judgment, That doesn't mean that the circumstance itself is joyful. That's actually against his point. The circumstance is a trial. It's not joyful, but you make a mental judgment about it. You decide in advance how you're going to approach that thing. Uh, Think about it maybe like putting on a pair of glasses. That you see the world a certain way, but when you put the glasses on, now everything you see, you see it through a new lens. You see it differently, uniquely. You see it, in this case, through the lens of joy. What James is commanding here is a faith position. It's a faith posture that says, my view of life will be determined foremost by my faith, not merely what I see and feel and experience. Now, this applies to things both big and small. A lot of times, when we think of trials and suffering, we're, of course, thinking of the big stuff. Maybe like persecution for your faith. Maybe like a cancer diagnosis, big things, obvious things, the loss of a loved one. Yes, it applies. But when James uses this phrase, various trials, he's also including the small stuff. Maybe an annoying neighbor, maybe a defiant child, maybe a financial struggle. This can be somebody who sins against you. That's a trial. But you know what? It's also your own internal sin struggle. That's a trial too. That's a trial of faith. Your own sin. And James will address that as he goes through this chapter. So various trials means every single person in this room can apply this verse today. There's not a person breathing in this room who does not know some various form of trial right now, whether great or small or in between. So that's encouraging for us. We can put this into practice today. This will apply someday, sure, but it applies right now. Right now. And so when a person uh, encounters a trial, James says joy, right? Where does that joy come from? Well, it begins in verse 3. Where does the joy come from? He says, the joy comes from knowing, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Our joy comes from something we know. That word knowing is not incidental. It's important. Something we know means something we are anchored in, something bigger than, more powerful than us. Not something we know about ourselves, but something we know about God. And the thing that James is convinced of here, the thing that we see all throughout the Bible, is that God himself is sovereign. He is ultimately powerful and in control. Not just over the easy and good and nice things in the world, but even the hard things and the difficult things, even our suffering. The hard things that you go through, no matter how you may feel about them, they are not cosmic accidents. The hard things that we go through, even then, God is present and faithful. He's powerful. He's purposeful. That famous Psalm 23, David says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. God was there. God was purposeful. God was present in the midst of David's pain. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul echoes what we see right here in James chapter 1. He gives us the same assurance. He talks about something we know, something we are anchored in. Paul says we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. James says we know. Paul says we know. Y'all, first and foremost, if... if If this verse doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. But it will never make sense unless we know something deeper, greater, more than our circumstance, more than ourselves, more than this world only. Joy in trials comes from knowing God and from knowing God's good and eternal purposes. That's where it starts. That's our anchor. Now you look again at verse 3 because James tells us what this good purpose is. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith. That's how he characterizes our various trials. Uh, testing, testing of your faith. Uh, t- this, this idea of testing has a dual meaning. It means, at once, it means uh, revealing. A revealing of your faith, but it also means a refining of your faith. Okay? If we say that the testing of your faith means that hard times reveal your faith, y'all, I think we probably know the truth behind that. That when things get really difficult in life, my, my intuitive response is, I'm going to run to God, or I'm going to run away from God. Right? And in that case, maybe the test, the difficulty, the trial, is revealing where my heart really lies. Okay? Uh, but that's not really what James is saying here. That's not his emphasis here. James's emphasis is more on the refining of faith. Uh, one of the ultimate purposes of every difficulty, of every trial, every struggle is that it purifies our faith. That our faith oftentimes is very weak. That our faith has a lot of gaps perhaps in it. That we haven't come to understand God through his word the way that we should and therefore we are weak. And trials have a way of purifying, of strengthening, of bringing three dimensions and not just a flat faith. Every hardship, y'all, is meant to draw us deeper into Christ. Not away from him. Every pain that we feel is meant to Um, is meant to strengthen our hope in his promises. That we become stronger to the degree that we realize that he is stronger than anything that we face. His promises are certain. Every sin struggle that we have is meant to bring us to repentance, to turn us back to Jesus Christ, to delight in his forgiveness, and to renew ourselves in obedience to him. All of these things are meant to drive us to God. And so here's the problem, I think, is that when a person, me, when I, or you, when we face struggles and trials and difficulties, we have our natural human response. And all of us, I think, tend to fall into one of these categories. Uh, First, usually first, we try to avoid the pain, don't we? And that's totally natural. We try to avoid it. We try to get away from it. We try to cushion ourselves against it. Um, Or we try to drown it out. And this maybe is, is more about uh, more close to the heart of the, of the folks that, that are here in this room, right? We know we can't avoid all pain, but we can try to numb ourselves against it. And there are a thousand different ways we can do that. We may turn to a substance. We may turn to a distraction, to entertainment, to food. We'll do whatever we can to numb ourselves to what we feel. And that's a totally natural human thing. Then we begin to look for solutions. How can we solve this problem? Who can I sue? To take care of my problem, right? So often that's 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 our inclination. How can I take this to court and, and get beyond this problem? Or maybe we just fall into despair altogether. And for some of us that may be the end of our suffering and pain, the, the last resort is to say, We just I'm just gonna give up. It's obviously not going away, it won't get any better, and so why even try? That's all very natural, that's human. But do you see what James is saying? That to be Christian is unique? To be Christian means that we are actually able to rejoice in trial. Not because the trial itself is joyful. We're clear on that. But because the trial grants us a fresh opportunity to trust in God, to depend on God, to turn to Jesus. The trial is going to show us more of Jesus. It draws us nearer to Jesus. Pain has a way of loosening our grip on the things of this earth. And anybody who's been through an extreme amount of pain, you probably can testify to this, that if we're trying to avoid pain, if we're trying to drown it out, if we're trying to solve our problems on our own, the more that pain comes our way, the more inevitable our suffering becomes, the looser our grip becomes on this world, especially if you're a Christian. Why would I root myself here? Why would I want to have a home forever here when here is so painful? when life is so chaotic and difficult and God has promised something so much greater beyond this. We loosen our grip. Pain is meant to do that. This is the refining of your faith. Um, And and James says it produces a real-life result. This is not just theoretical stuff. He says, you see it, verse 3, the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, this is an active idea. It's active endurance. It's not just patiently waiting until you get to heaven. It's more than that. It's an uncommon strength to bear up under the trials of life without being crushed by them. Everything uh, that you enjoy in this world, more or less, can be taken away by pain and suffering. But the Christian has a unique privilege in that we cannot ourselves be crushed. Because we have eternal life within us through Jesus Christ. And therefore we can endure even in the most difficult things. This is. James is talking about a strength which God supplies that gives you the ability to navigate life now with confidence, with joy. Because you have a faith that even if the whole world around you crumbles, that you become stronger in the midst of it because of what's been given to you, what you have to stand on. Um, y'all, the more that, that life and pain purifies us, the more that our faith in, uh, brings about endurance, the more that we're tested, the more that we grow... James says, uh, the fuller, stronger, more complete we become. Now, if 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 I talk about a temporary trial, we probably can nod our head to say, yeah, I went through that and it was terrible, but I came out the other side better, stronger, more character, more perspective. That's great, that's true. But see, what James is talking about is not just the little stuff, the temporary stuff that we can kind of get by maybe in our own strength, and sometimes that's how we do it. James is talking about the kind of endurance that even if it's a monumental, unsolvable problem, you will become something on the other side that only God can produce. And and therefore we don't get the credit. That's why the ultimate goal, look at verse 4. Endurance itself is not the ultimate goal. Verse 4 says, Let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, I think this means that every, every trial that refines your faith Every trial that produces endurance is accumulating within you and for you something perfect. I mean, James uses the word perfect, which I am very nervous about when I see the Bible say, you know, Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect at the end of Matthew 5. I look at stuff like this and I think, I know I'm not perfect. And frankly, I don't think I ever will be. I know I'll never, I'll never be perfect. So how can, how can trial produce something perfect and complete? How can I lack nothing? Well, we go back to God. Listen, what James is promising is not of your own making. What James is promising is something that God produces. You can't perfect yourself, but God can. God will produce an effect, an outcome in you through your trials, through your faith, through your endurance that makes you something that he delights in. I think probably what James has in mind here, he doesn't give us specifics, but when he says that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing, that maybe he has uh, what we would call the fruit of the Spirit in mind, that God is producing a character, a godliness in you that only trial and difficulty and endurance can produce. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control the fruit of the Spirit, that is the produce of God's Spirit, things that we cannot manufacture within ourselves, but that God delights to produce in us. And so often those things come through endurance. God is making something out of you that is good and pure and eternally uh, wonderful. I mentioned earlier what Paul said in Romans 8. He talks about the fact that we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Then Paul tells us what that purpose is. What is God's purpose for us? He says that we may be conformed to the image of his son. God's ultimate purpose for you is to make you into the image of Jesus, to make you like Christ. And I think that that's the the echo here between Paul and James. They're really saying the same thing. The perfect and complete outcome of all of our testing, all of our endurance is what? It's that we become like Jesus. And where we fall short in this life, and we will, we do, God has promised that he will bring us into completion in the day of glory. That he will glorify us with Christ and we will share in his riches forever. We will receive the fulfillment of that promise. Pain is part of the process. It's part of God's intended process. And so the joy we experience through trial, listen, it's not shaped like us. It's not shaped like the world. The joy that we experience is not, things are tough now, but it'll get better tomorrow. I know it will. Y'all, that's a faint hope. That may happen, but it may not. It probably won't. No, the joy is God-shaped. The joy is God-specific. It comes from knowing Him and trusting Him, seeking and depending on Him, drawing from Him the strength and the character of true faith. That's the joy that James is talking about here. It looks like Jesus because it comes from Jesus. And that's why even our trials, even the worst of things in life, can be an occasion for rejoicing because we now see through the lens of Christ. Now, I, that hopefully to you sounds wonderful. Doesn't that sound wonderful? But, but who, who here lives this way already? Like who here would raise their hand and say, y'all follow me because I'm the, I'm the picture of faithful endurance and perfection in trials? I, I wouldn't raise my hand. N- none of us probably are living this way the way that we'd like to or the way that we know that we should. So how do we actually turn the corner here? Most of us, I suspect, maybe all of us, when we encounter trials, we want James chapter 1 to be true. I want to feel this way. I want to respond this way. But more than likely, and if you're like me, you respond instead with either anger or anxiety or self-pity or despair. That's how we tend to respond when things go south, when things don't work out our way. So how do we become like this? I mean, that's the million-dollar question, right? Well, James actually tells us James says, if you want this kind of joy, if you want to know this kind of testing that produces the endurance, that produces the complete result, then it begins by asking for it. Look at verse 5. He says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, I've always read verse 5 as a change in subject. Maybe you have too that James has been talking about suffering, but now he's going to take a hard right turn and talk about something different. He's going to talk about wisdom now. But these verses, 4 and 5, are not meant to be separated. They're conjoined. They relate to one another. He talks about not lacking anything in verse 4, but then he talks about lacking something in verse 5. These are meant to go together. The only way that you and I find joy in trials, the only way we develop godliness through our difficulties is if we possess the wisdom of God. Only the divine wisdom of God can change how we look at life and how we navigate through life. So, here's here's his point. If you lack the wisdom to live out joyful endurance in godliness, he says, ask God for it. This is almost so simple that I laugh about it. This is so practical. Aren't aren't there more hoops that we need to jump through? Don't, Don't you need to... You know, brush yourself up first and be good and go to church. Aren't there, isn't there a list of to-dos before we get to the asking? James says, no, start with the asking. That's the most fundamental part. Father, God, give me, please give me the wisdom, the perspective, the ability to navigate life, to navigate through trials. And this is a command, like so many commands in our Bible, it's a command that has a promise attached to it. You see it? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. That's not an ambiguous promise. We don't need to figure out what that really means. It means what it says. Ask, and you will receive. It sounds like something Jesus said. Ask, and you will receive. Um, And and the character of the promise is, is... wonderful to me. We, we, we think about asking and receiving. Of course, that's the main point, but you notice what, what James says in the middle? Ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach. That's the character of the giver here. There's a, there's a commentator named Daniel Doriani who gives a great insight on this. The two things James mentions, that God is generous. He gives to all generously. You know what that means? That when God gives wisdom, if you ask him for wisdom, he generously gives it to you. It's a gift, not a debt. Now, that's, that's common sense. A gift is not a debt, right? But think about this. So often, I think, when God gives us something, we assume that there's a payment plan that we have to now sign our name on, that there's got to re- we've, there's be a return investment here for it to be worth it to God. But no, he gives to all generously. He lavishes wisdom upon you. It's a gift. And then secondly, when it says that God gives without reproach, that means he gives wisdom to you without a bad attitude. Now listen, God is different than me. And if I was your dad, and you came to me for wisdom, okay, I might say, okay, well I would give you wisdom, but what did you do with the wisdom I gave you last year? You never used it. Or I would give you wisdom, but you should have asked me two weeks ago. Why didn't you ask me when you needed it then? God doesn't give with reproach. God simply, lovingly, generously Gives. And I think think a lot of us, we ask God for wisdom when there's a really important decision to make. Who should I marry? What job should I take? Where should I live? Where should I go to college? Big decisions. But we don't think to ask God for wisdom with uh, a continual sense of need. That every trial I go through requires the wisdom of God that I might navigate it with joy and faithful endurance. And yet, so often, I don't think to ask. I, don't, I pretend that I can navigate myself and I don't come to God with need. James is saying, ask him. He will give it. He will show you how to navigate your life in the midst of every trial. He'll give you the joy that he commands of you. Now, there is one caveat. There's a big caveat, a big condition. We can't miss it. It's in verse 6. To ask God for wisdom is an act of faith. But you see it in verse 6, he says, but you must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Uh, y'all, James, James is not saying that, uh, that you can't ever have any feelings of doubt whatsoever, that that no questions are allowed for God. You can't ever ask a sincere question. You can't ever feel feelings of doubt. That's not his point here. I think sometimes we assume that, that any honest doubt that we feel in our hearts is somehow bad and wrong and sinful. That's not the point. The truth is that God answers weak prayers just as he answers strong and confident prayers. You don't have to have all things figured out. You don't have to be sincere and confident all the time about everything in order for God to listen to you he listens he loves you that's not james's point james's point is you can't be double minded or you might translate this as double-souled okay you can't be two different people when you come to god uh, what james i think is talking about maybe he's talking about the kind of person who pays lip service to god this person prays but he's already got his plan of action figured out he's not going to wait for an answer from god He's not going to do what God says in his word. I know what I'm going to do already. I'm going to pay lip service because I know it's the right thing to do. Or maybe I can hedge my bets by asking for God's blessing, but I'm not really going to listen to what he says. That's double-mindedness. Or maybe I come to God when things get really, really bad. I come to God, of course. But if they're not bad, if things are easy, then I just skip along as if God doesn't exist at all. And that may be, for me, a double-mindedness, a double-souled reality. I'm trying to live in both realities at the same time. My own strength, my own competence, but I also want God's blessing at the same time. James says you can't do that. That's doubt. Ultimately, you're praying to God, but you don't really believe he's going to come through. You don't need him to come through. You're just hedging your bets. And in that case, James says you're not going to receive what you ask for. To come to God is to come to, to, to him as an act of faith, which means he's your anchor. You notice what James says, that a person in doubt is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You have no stability. You have no footing. You're going to go wherever your doubts carry. You're going to go wherever your pain takes you. But here we have an anchor for the soul. We have Jesus Christ, who keeps us stable, that no matter what happens to us, no matter what trial comes our way, no matter how difficult things get, We can remain firm because our anchor is not us. Our anchor is not our savings account. Our anchor is not our ability to navigate on our own. It's Jesus. Trials and doubt will wipe you off the map. But if you have an anchor, then you are stable because you're in him. Uh, There's a pastor in Texas I really love named Tommy Nelson. He gives this illustration, such a simple illustration, but I feel like it, it helps me connect because I know this, From experience, maybe you do too. There's a there's a little child on the edge of a swimming pool, and dad is about four feet in the water with his hands out like this. And what is dad saying? Jump, jump! I'll catch you. Jump. What is the child doing? Not jumping. Right? They come up to the edge, and then they'll do this, you know, and turn back around, and they'll put, you know, like, but like because the child doesn't doesn't fully understand, doesn't fully trust. And the truth is that only until she jumps is she going to know just how good and how strong and how faithful her dad really is in that moment. Only if she jumps. Otherwise, she'll never know. She'll never know. And for us to ask God for what we need in faith is to jump. Y'all, listen, it's, it doesn't always make sense to us. This is, we talked about it. This is a backward scripture. I don't understand how, how trials can in any way be an occasion for joy and rejoicing. I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Of course it doesn't. It's not meant to. It's a faith position. And until we're willing to ask, until we're willing to see through the new lenses of Jesus Christ, we're never going to know just how good and strong and able our Father is. You've got to jump. I I, I, I try my best to think about the original readers of a letter like this. It's so hard for us to do. This was 2,000 years ago. This was half a world away. Very different culture. Being persecuted for their faith. Most of us don't know what that's like. It's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of these early Christians who are scattered abroad and suffering for their faith. But I, I want to tell you this. Because this is, this is insult to injury for those who are opening this letter of James for the first time. See, they lived in a time and place. They lived in a culture where the dominant belief was if you are suffering, that is a sign of God's displeasure. God is angry with you. God is condemning you. That's why you're going through such a hard time. That's why things are working against you in life. Is because, it's because God's mad at you. And that was a very natural way to think. It was was prevalent across all religions. Only when life is good is God happy with me. When life is bad, I must have done something to deserve it. But in this case, of course, they hadn't. They're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. So how do you make this connection? When James looks at them right off the bat and says, rejoice in your trials, feel joy when you think about your suffering and your struggle, where in the world does that come from? It comes from Jesus. And that's the obvious answer. James knew it, his readers knew it, but they needed to be refined in this reality that you find that joy, that endurance, that faith, you find it in Jesus. How? Because Jesus came to suffer. Jesus himself suffered not because he was condemned, not because God was displeased with him, but he suffered for you to remove condemnation. He suffered for you to pour out upon you all of God's love and mercy and kindness and compassion. The, the belief of the day that if bad things are happening, God must be angry. Jesus turns that on his head and says, He suffered to take away God's anger, to take away God's condemnation, and to grant you his mercy in its place. This was a message unlike anything that had ever been seen or heard before, that Jesus comes to us and grants us eternal, inexhaustible, pure joy. And it comes to us how? Through suffering. Through suffering. That's why I say that the Christian life is utterly unique in the world. Everybody suffers. Everybody goes through trial. But it's the suffering of another person on our behalf that saves us. You are saved. If you are a Christian, it is because... Not because you entered the crucible of trials and came out the other side. If you are saved, it's because someone else was crucified for you. And by faith in him, you now have life in his name. Um, Y'all, every religion addresses the issue of suffering, they have to, because it's so universal. Every philosophy tries to address the issue of suffering. And we always do it in one of two ways. Either we try to explain it as to why it happens, or we try to advise people how to deal with it. Right? That's really all we can do. Try to explain why suffering happens, and then try to advise people how to deal with it. But y'all, you understand this? Only Christianity, only Christianity tells us that God himself suffers. God himself suffers. Through Jesus Christ, God entered into our suffering and then went through the ultimate suffering for us. That's why we can have joy in suffering. A joy that makes no sense based on circumstance. But if we know a God who was willing to suffer for us, then we can live and and see now through new lenses. How do you know that God is really going to vindicate you in all your pain? How can you know that true perfection and glory really awaits you forever and ever in heaven? How can you know that, like Romans 8 says, all things, somehow all things are going to work together for good? How can you know it? Only if you know Jesus. Only if you see Jesus, Jesus himself as the ultimate sufferer, the true innocent sufferer who died on your behalf and who was raised again to glory. And now he has become the anchor for your soul. That in the the midst of all of life's trials and difficulties, in the midst of all of our struggles that, that toss us back and forth and threaten to wipe us out entirely, we have an anchor for ourselves, an anchor for joy, for hope, for endurance, for wisdom, everything we need to navigate this life. All that you are and all that you'll become are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Not a better version of yourself, but in the person who loved you and gave himself up for you. This is the backward, strange, and wonderful joy that is available to us if we're simply willing by faith to look through the lenses of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Um, Father, we we recognize this morning, I recognize this is so much easier said than done. And I pray, Lord, that in no way, in no way have I painted this as an easy thing, um, as, as something that we can just flip a switch on. No, Father, this is... Pain is painful. Bad things are bad. Our own sin within us is powerful. Father, we, we are strugglers. We suffer. Um, both great things and small things. Lord, we, there's not a person in this room who's, who's ignorant to this reality. And so, Father, I pray that we don't give pat answers to it, that we don't pretend it away, that we don't try to, try to just smile and fake our way through this but that as we encounter trial, that every single one, every single moment, every single opportunity would be for us um, uh, a, a faith test, a purifying opportunity. Not that we would have faith in ourselves, but that we'd have faith in Jesus who loved us and died for us. And so, Father, grant me and right now all of us, please, Lord, grant us The the supernatural ability to look through new lenses, to look through the eyes of faith and not circumstance, to see Jesus Christ who suffered. Not so that we would not suffer, but He suffered, so that through our suffering we would become more like Him. And that our suffering never gets the last word. But all things work together for good. You cause it to happen, Lord, in your sovereign mercy. Father, this this, uh, left to ourselves, this is more than we can handle. And so, Father, bring us to a place of dependence on Jesus. And even as we pray right now, and we ask you for the wisdom to live this way, for the wisdom to, to see our trials and to navigate them differently, Father, we come from a really sincere place of need, and help us, Lord, if we're prone to pray with lip service, but secretly we've already planned out our response, that that we would stop and acknowledge the hard truth that apart from you, we can do nothing. We need you. We need you. Lord, I pray that wherever wherever we find ourselves this morning in our trials, whether small or great, that we would be refreshed in what is true, that we are not left to ourselves, that we are not people who cross our fingers and hope that it will be short and it will get out clean on the other side. But we are a people built on the very foundation of Jesus Christ, anchored securely in Jesus. And therefore, our joy looks like Jesus because it comes from Jesus. And I pray, Lord, in that way, we would be utterly unique in the world. We suffer just like everybody else. But, Father, let it be an occasion for rejoicing in you. And let it be so. Make it true, we pray, in the merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.